Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. That is Sprawl 2 by Arcade Fire from their Grammy-winning album, The Suburbs. The track's alternate title is Mountains Beyond Mountains, referring to the dead shopping malls of yesteryear that litter the American landscape. Analyst Brian Sazi of Bellis Capital Advisors and Jennifer Reingold of Fortune Magazine lap up retail's existential crisis like it was a giant cup of orange Julius after a full day of 25-cent Donkey Kong. (laughs) Tortured metaphors like those earn me the big bucks. That's coming up. But first, the news. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Joining us today from NPR's New York studio are Jen Reingold of Fortune Magazine and Brian Sazi of Bellis Capital Advisors. Welcome, Kmart shoppers. Thank you for having us. Thanks a lot. Brian, uh, I've, I've posited uh, before in some of my writing that you are an activist analyst or a kind of a new new age, postmodern, renegade, gorilla, uh, Red Bull popping <laughs> analyst. And that back in the day and even now, there's a cushy relationship between you know, retailers, for example, the, the universe that you cover and uh, the, the, the few analysts that are left on Wall Street. They put out very predictable research. Meanwhile, you're out there throwing these bombs at Sears and Kmart using Twitter, using Vine, using photos that, that um, shame these companies. I mean, how did you come up with this idea? Well, first of all, I've been in the research business going on, wow, 11 years, even though I don't look like it. But I'm tired of seeing the reports by the analyst people who have been what I call them Pope jobs for the past 15 years, the stuff that I see in the systems are of no value to retail investors and, in my opinion, institutional investors. So what I've tried to do is do it extremely different using the technology right in front of my face. I mean, you can download a free uh, app called Vine, put on your iPhone, go out there and take pictures and match it up to the financials that, were all, that are being shoved down our throat by executives with their own agenda every three months on an earnings call. So it's using that technology and placing it with the stories and hopefully making some good calls that keep me a lot of clients. And so we see you tormenting the likes of Sears, which as you know was bought a decade ago by uh, hedge fund billionaire Eddie Lampert in a, in a stroke of what everybody thought was financial genius. He was going to unlock the real estate values when he used um, recently uh, uh, bankrupt Kmart to acquire Sears. But this has been an unmitigated disaster. There was a post uh, that was put out uh, last fall that <laughs> you had the 18 depressing photos that show why nobody Wait, I did wants. That? <laughs> yeah, Business Insider carry Business yeah. Insider carried this, and it shows the multiplier effect of of your research. Eighteen depressing photos that show why nobody wants to shop at Sears. You show these forlorn-looking mannequins looking the other way, or empty empty photo studios where you know mom used to take us when we were young. Um, shelves that are poorly stocked, stains on the ceiling, stains on the carpet. Uh, to what end? I mean, what does this accomplish with Sears, which many have already said is just a, a slow liquidation story? Well, this is first of all, on Wall Street, Sears has no coverage. I mean, there's only two analysts, uh, so they need to pick up the game from that respect. But here's a company that's been an absolute failure since Eddie Lampert took over, I think it was a 2004, well, te- te- look, 2005. Well, uh, you know, in fairness, Telly Savalas has no coverage because he's dead. <laughs> if, if everybody says Sears well, here, is going... Here's a, a national institution, Sears. He owns most of the stock also. <laughs> there is that. And they don't... They have not told their investors, uh, I think, the real true story. The real true story with any retailers found in the stores. And you go to any Sears and Kmart, and I had an altercation, I guess, on social media that everybody picked up on with the head of PR for Sears. Apparently, they have these baby unicorn stores that look absolutely amazing, and and they don't. You go into Sears and Kmart, they're not giving anything to the customer that Walmart and Target is, and they're essentially eroding their business from the inside out. And the pictures bring that story to life. 
Just to add a little bit on that, you know, I think it's fair to say that Eddie Lambert never wanted to give anything to the customer. And so the failure here is not exactly a failure to retail. It is a failure to um, cut costs dramatically and not have anybody notice. Well, what, what would be the alternative here if Sears were left to wither on the vine? I mean, it was kicked out of the Dow. They had to sell the Sears Tower. Would Sears be here today absent the infusion, the interest from, from Eddie Lampert? Would it be a, a slower liquidation story? I mean, where do you see that? I personally think that um, all retail that is not omni-channel and, and really, really set up for online is in dire, dire straits. Okay, I think Sears is the most kind of pathetic example of this. but And Sears owns Kmart. And Sears owns Kmart. Um, it would still be around. I, I, I think the other element is these stores throw off a lot of cash and, and, and declining numbers, but they will for some time. People still need to buy things. Do they enjoy going to these stores to buy them? No. Can they go, if they go somewhere else, can they get it online at Amazon? That's a lot easier and more pleasurable experience in most cases because the retailers haven't done anything exciting or compelling really to get to get people into the stores. Now, I think that Lampert's uh, solution was simply just to do nothing and to hope that that he could still get people that needed to buy their Kenmore washers or whatever because they had no choice. And I think that was his deliberate strategy. Now, weren't they supposed to be using the cash flow to invest in other things, much, like, much the same way Berkshire Hathaway bought this textile factory and is now a great holding company that is in no way related to textiles? Well, I mean, Eddie Lampert has given me no indication whatsoever, whether whether it is in the geeky CapEx numbers or whatever, in the sales numbers, whatever, that he wants to invest in these stores. And on a personal level, I don't know Eddie Lampert enough. You know, who is this man? Why is he? He almost has a, a vendetta against Sears and Kmart. He should be investing in these national institutions, and he's not doing it. In my opinion, he's orchestrating a slow liquidation of Sears and Kmart. And I think by 2017, you know what, will really hit the fan. Whether I think it will start with a dramatic stock decline, probably in the mid part of 2016, and then you're looking at maybe by the holidays of 2017, Sears is going to be maybe not necessarily in business the way it is today. It's tough to imagine that, but there's but where the stock is now, the finance of the company, you have to start raising cash from your business, and it's not generating the cash that it should be. Uh, Brian, I mean, uh, Jan, why why is the Sears even exist right now? I mean, if if you could, in theory and in practice, liquidate the company and give money back to shareholders, it would be draconian. But uh, why are we uh, prolonging this torment over what 2017, 2018? Everybody seems to know that it's inevitable that Sears is going to go the way of Montgomery Ward or service there's, merchandise. There's a pretty simple answer, and that's that that Eddie Lampert, in the course of the last several years, has bought up most of the stock. I mean, he's, he's almost taken it private. And so I don't think he planned this exactly the way it was, because as he owned more and more of the shares, he thought at some point there would be a turn. So I think it would have been liquidated at this point, but for the fact that he now has to get something back. You know, the only thing he's going to get back is just a lot of negative headlines, because he... If you go into the state of these stores, the, whether it's from the employees, you look at the computer systems in the stores. The stores are not set up, like Jen mentioned before, for omnichannel retailing. You want a company that's doing it right, it is Macy's. Their online, their online store is married to their physical stores. Now, I know recently Sears has come out with press releases saying that they, you know, they're trying to connect online to the physical stores. But if people have forgotten about your physical stores like they have in Sears and Kmart, they're not going to shop online and vice versa. You know, I should tell you, in the interest of full disclosure, uh, Sears and Lampert have sullied my second favorite brand, my first favorite being 
RC Cola. Number two is is Land's End. Yes. I used to love the quality, the return policy and yes. everything. And, and the quality has just fallen off a cliff. And yes. this is something that's I just being, got an order, actually, for my kids. Well, it's being spun off slowly, uh, but it's being saddled with debt. And it's a kind of a cynical thing And that I know... Uh, I believe Sears acquired Land's End before Lampert came in, but it showed that he almost had a reverse Midas touch with everything that he touched. I think I think that's right. And getting back to Brian's point about um, sort of marrying your your online retail with your offline retail, I mean this is this is no longer an option. This is not a question. I mean, I think you're right to give Macy some credit for this, but I'd also like to point out um, another one of our favorite retailers, J.C. Penney. Um, a lot has been made about the attempt at Ron Johnson had to, to transform the store. Now, Ron Johnson, for our listeners, was the executive brought in from the Apple stores. Uh, with with JCPenney, it was controlled largely by a hedge fund. Uh, and, and Bill Ackman and the activists came in and said, we want this guy in, and it turned out to be ruinous for the company. Right. And one of the reasons that it was ruinous that actually has not gotten a lot of attention is the fact that he unplugged. This is a guy who comes from Apple. I would just like to point this out. Unplugged the online aspect of JCPenney from the in-store part. So in other words, if you went into a, a store and you tried to buy a bedspread and you couldn't get the bedspread that you wanted because they didn't have it in the store, there was no method by which you could find it because they were operating in completely different parts of the business and they weren't connected. And um, it has been said to me that that, in fact, may have been responsible for as much as a billion dollars in, in lost sales. Now, you know, you talk about unplugged. They also unplugged my beloved $19 Stafford wrinkle-free shirts. It was just ever harder to find these things. It was depressing. You'd walk into a JCPenney, which tend to be in older vestigial malls like, you know, the Quaker Bridge Mall or White Plains, uh, I believe, had one. Um, uh, in, in Richmond, Virginia, it's the uh, Regency Square Mall. These are that like that scene from Back to the Future, you know, the terrorist shootout, like that vintage mall, circa 1983, 1985. And what's especially striking, there was a stat that came out that these legacy malls, at least half of them have a Sears or JCPenney as an anchor store. So if you step back from this, Brian, it's, it's, really, it's really perilous for the entire commercial property sector. Well, half of those malls probably won't have Sears in a couple years. But the thing is... Um, Going back to Sears, you mentioned uh, Land's End, but look at what Craftsman done. Craftsman is the all-American brand, lawnmowers, drills, screwdrivers, whatever. The company is not even invested in that brand. So when you go there and you're a tradesman, you're a worker on a job site right now, they don't even have this stuff in stock. And that is just unexplainable. That tells you the breakdown of the systems at Sears Holding Corporation. And they're, they're killing that brand, too, as well. But didn't he move to license some of these names, license out some of these names like Craftsman and Kenmore? He's tried, but you still, as that... Old school, let's say if you're over 40, 45 years old, whatever it is, you are, you know Sears for, let's say, Kenmore or Craftsman. But if you go there and you have a depressing customer experience, well, now you're going to Home Depot, which is adding more appliances, more private label brands. And then if you don't find it at Home Depot, you're going to Lowe's. So Sears is not only taking a backseat within food, and they're also taking a backseat in some of the key categories that they have historically been known for. In fairness, I do like the tube sock selection at Sears, so you know you shouldn't rag on that. Now that's full disclosure. <laughs> this is full disclosure. I'm Robin Farzad. Stay with us. Support for this program was provided by the Martin Agency. Headquartered in Richmond, Virginia, the Martin Agency has consistently been ranked among the top advertising firms by national media and industry leaders alike. 
Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Joining us today from NPR's New York studio are Jen Reingold of Fortune Magazine and Brian Sazi of Bellis Capital Advisors. We're talking retail's big existential crisis, what it is to be a Wall Street analyst in 2014, and all manner of, of delightful esoterica. Now, Jen, going back a few years, you co-authored with your uncle Confessions of a Wall Street Analyst. And a lot of people would say that for this conversation, it could be inside baseball, but it's not, and that we're 12 years removed from these landmark reforms that, that Elliot Spitzer took on after that period where a lot of people last truly cared about what Wall Street analysts said and used that to speculate in internet stocks. It's a really post-apocalyptic scene right now. And you wonder, especially you know, as a financial journalist, what is the value of a sell-side analyst to you or a Wall Street analyst? Uh, I would have to say only in certain cases is there still a large value from the perspective of a journalist. I would say that um, many of them have have maintained close ties to the companies and it makes some of their information worthless. Um, I don't think that they have as much power as they did back in the day. Um, they had an incredible amount of power. They were the ones everybody went to with information um, and they aren't allowed to do that anymore. So. So what you saw uh, in, at the turn of the century where um, telecom analysts, for example, like my uncle, were um, pressured and recruited and told, um, offered shares of stock to do anything, basically. And, and you know, in his case, he, he did not do that. Um, but they had uh, an ability to kind of influence the market in a way that people don't any longer. Now, having said that, I think that there is a value in a smart and an honest analyst who's not beholden to the bank. Um, he or she works for or to the company. And those people do still exist. And those people are, are frankly, like reporters. You know, they go out, they go, they do legwork like Brian does, um, look at things. They don't trust everything that uh, management tells them. And and I think that you, as an investor, can learn a lot from, from an analyst, but you have to, you know, really know who you're talking to. Well, what is the value of an analyst coming out and saying, I'm increasing it from a market perform to outperform? And- Absolutely nothing. And that's what gets me fired up. I think to be... This do you not s- have ratings on your? Stocks? I do. I have the ratings. I have the price target. But I think to be this new school analyst, you have to be a bit something of somewhat of a, a badass, you know. So to a speak. renegade of funk. A renegade. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yes, <laughs> you have to almost view it as you and your clients versus the management team. It's great to have those inside tips. I talk to management. I'm on the phone with Chipotle. I've talked to J.C. Penny. In fact, I talked to him like a month ago. But you never let them know which way you're leaning. You lure them in. You ask them certain questions. And I guess in many respects, like a journalist. And then you try to put that together, at least in retail, to what the things you're seeing in the store. So I'm not beholden to management whatsoever. If I have to drop the hammer on them, I most certainly will, especially if what I'm hearing from contacts in the stores doesn't fit congruently with what, 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 what uh, JC Penney's telling me. But you me. have your own company, right? And Correct. you are not doing banking, and you are not doing other work for... for, for how, do you, how do you make money, incidentally? Yeah. Who's buttering your rolls? <laughs> well, we put, they pay a fee for the research. The clients do? The clients pay a fee, fee for the research, either quarterly, semi-annually, or annually. But so, this is not getting you the money that Jack Rubin did way back when. This it's a different no, it is a, a very much No, that's not a men's warehouse suit he's wearing. That's <laughs> no, really... it's a it's very much a different Sears, model. Sears. I mean theoretically, <laughs> in terms of pricing, I mean you can make you can have pull in five to ten grand a quarter just for certain coverage on your entire coverage universe, or you can charge a client per one stock. You know, admittedly a lot of the stuff that I do takes a while to pan out. I mean, I've gotten lucky in many respects with a JCPenney or, you know, a Sears that you take pictures and they come out the next week and they come out with their earnings warning. So for me, that's just timing. I think that's where my experience in journalism, you know, because I have a lead other life in the world of media, plays in. You know when to write certain stories. You know when to do certain research reports or send out certain pictures on Twitter or whatever. You're allowed to do this because you run your company. Mm-hmm. Doing a social media 
you know, sharing and tweeting whatever you wanted to tweet Not whenever. Happy. If you worked yep. for um, Solomon or, Brothers or something, it's no kind of way. verboten with 140. No way. That would never happen. So you have a, a freedom that, that, that they cannot have, in fact. Now, a lot of these analysts are very intelligent. They know a lot of stuff. And, and frankly, it's not a bad thing to talk to management either. It's a combination. Oh, I've learned. I mean, to talk to them, I mean, I learn a lot. Anything I can do, you know, I talk to Starbucks. There are things that I still get from management teams that are not, they're not in the financials, not numbers, but things they might be working on or doing. You know, this week we found I talked to the Starbucks. They came out with a frap truck. There's a frap truck invading California right now. That's not in their filings, but because I talked to the company, I've built a relationship with them. That's something I know, and I can put it into a story, or I can think about, well, is, Star is Starbucks secretly testing same-day delivery? So you start building the story that way, and how does that impact their stock price? Is that reflected? So you try to put the pieces to the And the together. Starbucks drone, of course. We can't forget about oh, it's that. Coming. that. being a Seattle company. <laughs> it's coming. Now, you know, I interestingly um, enough with this, like on commenting on Starbucks is, uh, it, it shows how you get an you get the attention from a company like this, whether they perceive you as hostile or a non-entity or whatever. Social media being the great equalizer, using Twitter as a, a, a kind of a lever to get in there, to force yourself in by putting a hashtag in there, the ticker symbol, the company's um, uh, Twitter handle. They're forced to deal with you, especially when you're retweeted by so many other peers on the street and journalists. I mean, we saw that with Sears. We saw it when you were at Starbucks, frankly. You looked askance at how their new food offerings were interrupting the flow of the line, that it could be an actual threat to operations. And because of that, you know, even I live and learn every two. I'm always very careful, believe it or not, despite what the pictures might think, very careful what I put out on Twitter and Facebook. I try to keep it within my brand controversial, but not anything completely over the do top Do you ask wacky. to take the pictures, or do you just take the pictures? Well, the Starbucks, in many ways, I kind of ran into an issue with them. You know, they wanted to know that I was publishing this report, because I have a relationship with Starbucks. So, in many respects, a lot of the stuff I'm doing, I'm learning that maybe hasn't been done yet, or maybe there's some kind of protocol that I maybe even I should be taking, but I don't well, know Well, you're yet. acting so more like someone in my business, frankly, than someone in yours. Absolutely. Which, which I think is it's interesting thing to talk about. I mean, about. my lines, I mean, in many respects, yes. I mean, I have you know, I do video, I do a lot of video work, and the lines are blurring. So I could, I do you do. often get shut out by companies when you when you have put something that they didn't like up? Other than Sears? <laughs> no, actually, no. I would say this. Out of every one, my coverage list is up to, I think, maybe 11 or 13 companies. They all talk to me. Maybe Walmart is one company that is a interesting relationship. You know, I've covered Walmart for 11 years. Um, but not, no, not for the most part. Everybody's still open to talk to me. I think even more so now because they see the social media presence. They see how people are responding. They're like, you know what? Let's set a meeting with this person. Let's talk to him. Maybe we can have, change his opinion of our company in some way. I mean, one potential criticism I could see, of course, is you know selective data, right? So if you mm -hmm. go into one store and there's tumbleweeds and you go into another store and it's great, you know, who's to say which one you chose? Mm -hmm. Oh, no, you're right. I mean, that's the biggest risk. I mean, because at the end of the day, you can only touch so many Sears, JCPenney, or Walmart stores. So it's up to me, I guess, to visit as many stores as I could, talk to my contacts, and try to put the pieces together. Because, you know, I may visit 15 JCPenney stores, but maybe what I'm seeing in the stores in terms of traffic may not match up to what my friends on the West Coast are doing. Right. Now, Jen, you've written extensively on Target. It's another company that's struggling. It was thought to have its own niche, you know, Target, where they could charge a premium and everybody was happy. Uh, with um, not having the sociological guilt trip of going in there and they were less susceptible to showrooming, i.e. people coming in there and, and looking at a, a, a big screen TV and then buying it on Amazon. Uh, they've run into a huge stumble right now with the data breach. And while six years ago or so, they thwarted a, an approach, an engagement, if you will, from the same activist investor who hurt JCPenney, right now people are saying that they could be in the crosshairs of another activist, that they are very much up for grabs. 
I think Target has made a lot of serious, serious mistakes that have almost not been noticed in the last couple of years. I think the data breach is actually the last of, I mean, and the most public, obviously, of the problems. But I think that the core, uh, it goes far beyond that. I, I think that what's happened is Target um, has been sort of ripped off and copied by just about everybody. I mean, everyone has designers that do knockoff uh, brands. You know, Kohl's has them. Walmart has them. I mean, anybody can get a high-end designer at a low price now. That was very innovative at the time. They didn't really do that much beyond that. Um, also, when Greg Steinhoffel, who's just uh, had to step down, became CEO a few years back, um, you know, I spent some time with him. He had actually almost never given any interviews ever at the time. And the man was so incredibly uncomfortable with discussing anything about the strategy, anything about the business. I feel, and in fact, that had always been tar- Target's, you know, MO. And it works when things are good. And it doesn't work when things start to go bad. There's a world where people are just waiting and waiting for you to fail when you are the leader. And I I would actually say that Apple is very vulnerable to this right now. It's great to not share. It's great to not talk. It's great to to uh, not, you know, to... When you're flying high. Exactly. And and so what happened is they started to lose their edge. You know, they lost Michael Francis, who was the head of marketing, who went over to JCPenney and um, did not last long there at all. Um, But they started to lose some big talent. Um, They became more and more insular. And they focus a lot on groceries, which is fine. But at the end of the day, what Target sells is commodity. I mean, it's mostly food. It's not mostly cool designer stuff. That was a small marketing aspect of the company. And and I think that, that Target is now facing the reality that it is basically a giant food wholesaler um, and, and, and has not figured out a way to sort of re-interest customers in, in what they do. I think I think the Target is in really fundamental trouble right now. Now, Brian, I'm thinking back. You know, Jen has me thinking to Target's travails. I remember going to Target uh, just ahead of Black Friday, uh, retail Black Friday post-Thanksgiving last year, and these guys were girding for battle. They're like, you remember last fall. That yeah. It's going to be different this time. We're going to offer such a value proposition as to shut out Walmart. Everybody was competing and Best I can remember, it turns out to be a disastrous quarter for all of them. In fact, a, a lot of wags on the web were following this, uh, this, this, you know, death and injury count. All these people who were beaten up trying to get these eighty-dollar LCD TVs. Um, that speaks. To, and and by the way, the bookend of that is is Jeff Bezos of Amazon appears on sixty Minutes after all that mishigas and says, "I'm looking into this drone that might <laughs> further further make us more indispensable." So. Is this just a, a race to the death? Uh, a, 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 I, I don't even know how to put it. Like a, a death spiral. Yeah, I mean, and, and Jen brought up a great point. I think the market is not appreciating, at least with Target, the fundamental problems in their business. The inside of a Target store has not evolved basically whatsoever. Their electronics section section is significantly depressing. But look what Best Buy is doing. By the end of the summer, Best Buy will have closed, I think, 503 interesting shops from Samsung, Sony, and Microsoft inside of its stores. So they're giving at least enticing the consumer visually to get them in the store because they're going to have something fun to shop. And These also are stores great, within stores? Stores within stores. And they're also going to have more intimate customer experience. Well, Best Buy's evolving. Target's not. Look at JCPenney. For all the problems that they've been on, they have about 500 stores now with a home department that's arranged correctly and merchandised correctly. You go to the home department at Target, it's depressing. It has not evolved. So I think the market is not appreciating what Target has to do in the U.S. to evolve with everybody else. But while they're doing that, now they have a Canadian business, which is an absolute, in my opinion, remains in significant disarray. And I wouldn't be surprised if the new CEO, 
They come in in 2015, and 2016, they exit these target locations altogether. Dude. Why is Canada so hard to succeed in? Right, with Sears Canada and... Well, yeah. I mean, you have I mean not, doesn't you know, everyone think it's basically the same country? It, it's pricing. Uh, I think Target's products are, they're still viewed as not priced correctly for the market. Walmart Canada is killing everybody in the marketplace. And also the store sites for these Target locations, um, the ones they bought were from a company called Zellers. Zellers were out of business. A company goes out of business for a reason. Something around those stores was not working economically. So Target essentially just bought those stores, rebranded them as Target, and I think just didn't do the proper research. They rush into the market, and I think they'll probably have to exit it. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking the meaning of retail life, existential angst, malls dying out like mountains beyond mountains, and all manner of esoterica. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the big A in this industry, Amazon.com. Stay with us. This program is made possible with support from Virginia Commonwealth University. Located in Richmond, Virginia, VCU is a premier public research university focused on academic success. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Joining us today from NPR's New York studio are Jen Reingold of Fortune Magazine and Brian Sazi of Bellis Capital Advisors, both retail watchers extraordinaire. Jen, I wanted to touch on Amazon. I mean, this is the big scarlet A in the entire sector. They seem to get a pass from Wall Street. Nobody's really looking at their net margins. They just think that there's this call option on Jeff Bezos, the founder and CEO, that he is a disruptor in chief, whether he's doing it with cloud computing or um, little cables that are going to put Radio Shack out of business. Just trust him. And what is the end game for him? Well, as far as I can tell, the end game is everything. I mean, I think that guy wants to be, you know, the mass, uh, the master, master of the universe in the literal sense. I mean, you think about his original names for some of his, his companies. One was Relentless. Um, he is relentless, and he's a great businessman. But there are a couple of things you got to keep in in mind here in terms of advantages that he's had. I mean, number one, the company did not have sales tax on their on their items, and still most. I mean, only and you could now. still arbitrage that in many states. Yes, and and that is, I mean, that's like the carried interest thing with the hedge funds. Like it is an advantage that nobody even talks about. Now they've under now, of course, Amazon is pushing for sales tax because they understand, but they had the advantage in, in going forward, and that's critical. Um, I, I really, I am concerned. But also, you know, free shipping—they made that the industry standard. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. Although I don't believe they were the first to do free shipping, but you know, it's an incredible business model. I, I don't want to shop there, and yet I cannot not shop there because it is too convenient. It is too easy. I cannot live without my prime, and I feel upset about it. When you look at some of the the, the uh, discussions going on right now with the publishing industry, where Amazon is really trying to muscle out certain publishers that don't want to play by their rules, who do I think of? Walmart. I think about Walmart and what they did with, with little bike manufacturers and, and who went out of, had two choices, basically. You know, quadruple what you produce at a much, much, much lower margin if you want to sell to us, or you're out of business. And um, I think, you know, I think there's going to be a backlash at some point against this, but I don't think it's going to happen for a while. And in fact, Brian, you know, we talk about these companies that you sazify. I want to patent that, by the way. Get a little app. Hashtag. Hashtag. Sazify. Any of these companies that you shame with photos and little vins, vignettes, um, you got to kind of feel for them because they're like, I'm going up against Amazon. And in fact, when Christmas shopping season comes around, you end up seeing on Twitter, Amazon's like, go out and use our app. This hugely disruptive capability to take a picture 
of a of, of a what is it an SKU and mm-hmm. a, a yep. scanning system and then to get a price comparison point to Amazon in a five mile area and then these guys will further incent you by saying we'll give you five percent off pretty much telling you you must go in and showroom so all these companies are paying for the overhead and Amazon's making the sale and I think that speaks to the philosophy inside of Amazon and is why every big box retailer should be absolutely scared and why they continue just to chase them philosophy is. They are willing to sell general merchandise at a loss. You cannot do just to hope in the hopes of selling software at a high margin. Mm-hmm. If you're a Walmart, you're a Target. You cannot sell bicycles and a knife or, or a pistol or whatever it is at a loss. So you, they're having trouble competing with Amazon. Well, Walmart could. Now, well, now the, ti- the, 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 the tables are turned. They could do it online. But I mean, so it's not ideal. Amazon is willing to sell things just Wait, why? Why? To, they don't need that to cross-subsidize the cloud computing business or everything else they're disrupting. To kind of, you know, to be able to to send me, a, a, you know, a, a, a cable or, you know, with free shipping for 78 cents because I'm an Amazon Prime member. I know they're taking a loss on that. Some of the packaging that I've seen in this, they recently had to hike the cost on Amazon Prime and that they were taking a hit. Why? Why must they go in and, and hurt themselves like that to hurt the industry? Well, in terms of Amazon, I mean, Amazon yeah. is, they just want volume. They need the volume. They need the sales so they can plow it back into their, I think, bigger picture is to build DCs basically Distribu- right next to Wal- distribution, distribution centers. centers right up next to Walmart stores. And that's why I think you're seeing a Walmart, Target, even a Macy's trying to turn all of their stores, even a Best Buy and Dick's Sporting Goods, turn their stores into distribution centers because they see where Amazon is going. If they continue, if Amazon continues to drive the volume that they do. They're going to have the cash flow, and they're going to continue to put up these distribution centers to get closer to the consumer. And that's where everything is going in the street. They want to get all these retailers want to get as close to the consumer as humanly possible. Now, Jen, do you see Amazon getting a pass on this indefinitely? Just go out, do what you have to do, profit be damned? I don't. I don't see them getting a pass on it indefinitely. And I think, in fact, that they're going to run afoul of certain um, legal and certainly PR. I think the PR situation is already beginning to turn a little bit. But I think, you know, if you bring this back to retailers, if you think about Amazon as this presence that is, is relentless, what can they do? What can you sell physically in a store that's going to make people want to come there instead of press a nice little button in their office and show up and they're possibly in their office that day. I mean to me the answer has to be experience. It is not it's not about the product. Like the Best Buy. I mean that's why Best Buy is trying to like I mentioned earlier with the with the shops. So they're trying to give somebody some uh, an experience to come to their stores and hopefully with this new experience that visually looks appealing, the intimate customer service that the customer will, and Best Buy now price message everything that they won't have to go to an Amazon. But but it's so easy to do on a smartphone. It's right there. I'm looking at it, feeling it. And, using and frankly, just Best Buy setting employees. things up by brand. And this is what J.C. Penney also tried. You know, I I really respected that Ron Johnson was trying to to break this cycle of crazy discounting and and come up with a reason to go to a store. And I think what you said about Macy's is also true. And that it's beautiful there. It's fun to be there. And that's the point. Wait, is I it, never got that memo. It's fun to go to Macy's. <laughs> well, it's my mom fun. would it's, drag me there as a little well, kid. Well, now it's and I should really say it's more like the Macy's in Herald Square, but not all the Macy's in <laughs> Boca or whatever. I but, like going to Radio Shack, and there's that onion no, headline. You don't. Well, you better go I quick, did as a that kid. Not be in business much oh longer. no, the realistic headphones. I love those. But then there's that famous onion headline from 2007. Even the CEO of Radio Shack can't figure out how the company's still in business. Right? <laughs> and, and for as great as that Super Bowl ad was with all the 80s figures coming in Radio. Shack reinventing the wheel. You know, they try to reposition as a cell phone company, and now Amazon's going right after them as like the last Well, this is their last holiday season. I 
mean, I think really? this is Radio Shack's last holiday season. I Do mean, you think they're at, going Chapter 11? Absolutely. You look at their balance sheet, you look at where the sales are, every initiative they have tried, and ironically, in New York City, they opened up uh, a new Radio Shack of Future in Penn Station. Well, it closed, I believe, six months after. So in that high traffic type of location, Radio Shack still wasn't able to tell the consumer, hey, this is something new that we stand for. What's a radio, anyway? Exactly. I know, right? So you need to call it iTunes Shack. I don't know. But this What's is the last shack? holiday season. This is a podcast to start with. Right? <laughs> <laughs> We're cutting edge. So to what end? I know I keep hitting back on this. I just don't understand it. You always say, well, if a Walmart is doing this march from the heartland and taking out uh, chains that were inefficient, that couldn't compete with it on a, a supply chain or distribution basis and a discounting basis and the way it, it leans on um, um, those that, that provide it with inventory, at least you thought that they were going to harvest it at some point for market share or to some other end. I don't see where this race is taking us, whether you're talking about Best Buy, whether you're talking about the vestigial Kmart stores that are still in it, that still throw these blue light deals, that they still pay for a, a dot-com infrastructure. Uh, when are we going to see some inflection point? Where I, I haven't seen it. I, and we're coming off uh, an earnings season on Wall Street where retailers continue to issue earnings warnings. And within those earnings warnings- Blaming the weather. Blaming the weather. And within that, they, they, they put in, well, we're closing another 50 stores. Yep. 50 more stores than we already anticipated coming into the year. So I think you'll see more open real estate. Retailers still have to cut themselves, some of them, maybe in half, given the competition from an H&M, Forever 21, from an Amazon, or anybody else that's operating online. You're going to see a lot more open commercial real estate. The country is overstored. Yep. Okay, there is- Absolutely no question about it. And until physically some of these stories go away, it's there is not there, you're going to see the same kind of doom. But and Jen, gloom. what what happens to them? I mean, we went through the Great Recession, and by, you know linens and things went under. Circuit City liquidated, but by and large, we didn't see a, a spate of liquidations across the country to kind of inundate Class B, Class C, Back to the Future era malls. Do you see this happening? Because it certainly sounds apocalyptic if we talk about... It's not necessarily apocalyptic. I mean, the whole thing about the whole living patterns of the country are beginning to change, right? So so those way, way out, out of the, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? The exurbs? Yes, thank you. <laughs> the exurbs, um, you know, are becoming now the, the sort of center, as my colleague Lee Gallagher wrote in a book recently, the, the sort of center for <clears throat> Shameless plug. <laughs> plug. And... Um, but but the crime and so forth is moving there. People are becoming more urban. I, I think that's a trend that goes far even beyond this retail issue. And I and I think that what will happen with those spaces is they will have a totally different use. That maybe will be a daycare center. You know, it may. I don't think just seeing a mall as a mall is probably the way to think about these these commercial locations. You know, I think it's gonna. I my long running thought is, and you definitely hit on it. A lot of these stores, an old school JCPenney, it might turn into a hospital mm -hmm. because you're yeah, going to have more healthcare. baby boomers. Yes, I think you'll, you'll see a lot of this open space, what I'm calling zombie space, turned into <laughs> dialysis by, center. Right, yeah, oh. they'll be reclaimed by the community. Whether it's a local college try to turn into an, a, turn in a, an old Sears or Kmart in some, some kind of small business incubator lab, you will have to see all the space be reimagined for the next 10, 20, 30 years. How much space can be reclaimed by the community, though, if there's going to be a, a mass extinction event for these old school malls? And you've gone into every you know, decent-sized market. There's the old mall that your mom and dad took you to circa 1983. And there's the new one with the train set and the Nordstrom and the Cheesecake Factory. And the and Gucci the, and, and the coach. And the Gucci and the Orvis. And it's happening everywhere. And you wonder how much the real estate, commercial real estate market, I know it's not your sector, can absorb. Jen, you've written about this. Well, I, I think... I think the answer is that the commercial real estate is going to have to reconfigure itself. Everyone I speak to is 
moving as upscale as quickly as they can. And this, again, gets to an even broader question, which is sort of income inequality and and who's serving whom. I mean, I, th- I think where you see growth in any of these businesses is at the high end. I, you know, I mean, we're talking about Walmart. We're talking about Target. We're talking about companies that are servicing the lower income element of this country. And the same thing is true of these C-level malls. It's no one is going to be servicing these people because they're not a good monetary, uh, they're not a good investment at this point. I mean, it is a pathetic and sad statement on our country, I would say. But I think if you look at it from a strict business perspective, everyone is running for the high income hills. I mean, even look at, you know, a lot of the stores that we saw go post 2008. I still have Borders locations by me sitting there rotting away. So it will take, I think, a long time for this commercial real estate to get sopped up. And even, you know, speaking to Jen's point too, now we have dollar stores secretly closing stores. These have been some of the most aggressive Like openers. the Family Dollars. Family Dollars, Dollar Tree, Dollar General. Mm-hmm. Family Dollar, I think, is closing close to 100 stores in 2014. And I think that might be the first wave of stores that they're going to have to close because of the shift of people back to urban locations. And I think the people within those dollar store areas are just not spending at the stores to the level that the executives thought five, five years when they were planning the openings. I mean, you are not seeing an economic recovery at that level uh, of this country. You are seeing it's getting worse. It is getting worse, and you are seeing where you see the growth is really at the high end, period. And that's where you're seeing the more exciting concepts in retail because that's where the money's going. And a lot of money's clearly going to Chipotle. Try that for transition. <laughs> Brian, you've written about this quite a bit. This was uh, obviously the, the higher-end burrito company, the burrito company with a conscience that was spun off from McDonald's actually not too long ago. Maybe the worst disposal in corporate history. These guys seem to be crushing it throughout. You see the lines out the door. Maybe it's more a function of the fact that you have a uh, you know, assemble your burrito experience, but they can push through price increases. They can deal with an avocado or lime shortage. It seems to be one of the bright stories in, in kind of hoi polloi retail. Yeah, you know, I I understood Chipotle. I mean, the lines are always packed, whether it's lunch or dinner, but I didn't really understand, I think, the culture of Chipotle until I sat down, you know, interviewed the CEO of the company. And I think what makes Chipotle so good is that the employees have bought into the concept They want to greet people. They want to get them in as fast as possible. So I think that customer service for Chipotle is phenomenal, and it actually aids their margins and... uh, Do they pay more? They do pay a little bit more. And within there, they also have a clear path to becoming a restaurant manager. So a lot of... Chipotle doesn't hire from without for their management positions. So they are promoted from within. And some of these managers are making well over... $120,000 a year. So they have the incentive to start on the front line serving burritos, and they see a vision. You know, by 35 years old, I'm pulling $125,000 a year managing, let's say, 50, 60 Chipotle restaurants. So they want to work hard. They want to service the customers better than you see in a McDonald's, even a Starbucks. Do you think there might be an international angle to this story? After all, I was telling you before the interview, my, my cousin visited from Israel about four years ago, and we were in, walking through New York, and she's like, what's that line going out this restaurant? And I took her inside, and she's like, oh, my gosh, this is unbelievable. It's like a, I don't – they, they, like, put the beans with this. It's like a, they will even put the, the – the, how you say, the waka, waka, guacamole. They put it in. It's a, really – It's Robin, a new falafel. Robin, you must, bring it, you must bring it to Tel Aviv. And I was, like, thinking, hmm. Honestly, it's for, for, for a lot of fun, you should just take any – uh, non-American visitor <laughs> to a Chipotle. I wonder if there's an international element to this story. They do have, if I'm, I'd have to go back and check my own, I'm pretty sure they have three restaurants in the UK. So they have started to ta- take this concept overseas. But the one thing with Chipotle is they remain very 
conservative on opening up new restaurants. They will open one at a time instead of McDonald's opening hundreds at the same time, or even Starbucks opening hundreds at the same time overseas. They want to test the market. They want to know the market. They want to market the brand correctly, and they're not going to deviate from that plan. It's starting. They're already overseas, but I think it'll take time before you see a large amount of scale or a lot of Chipotle's all over the place. Now, in closing, Jen, we have a few minutes left. Your single best or worst prophecy for our, our beloved listener out there? Mm, single best or worst prophecy. Um, I will prophesize that this year's Black Friday will be a disaster. Full stop. Full stop. Of course, there will be some winners and some losers, but I think we're going to see a lot of, I think we're going to, I think there's a lot more optimism on retail built into the market than there should be. And Brian? Uh, I think Walmart at some point this year will announce uh, a restructuring program from its your, for its U.S. business. Maybe sometime in the fall, there are at least 300, maybe 350 Walmart stores in the U.S. that are underperforming badly, and they may not even be profitable. Their sales are close to down 6% every quarter. So I think it's time for Walmart to clean its act up and get real. Do you think Kmart survives Christmas? They will survive. I think Sears and Kmart as a company will be around, I think, Bad, until 2017, but the time is very much taking on. I think they will have to have a horrible, horrible holiday season. And Radio Shack? Radio Shack, this is their last holiday season. Wow. You heard it here. Radio Shack just got sazified by Brian <laughs> Sazi, the CEO of Bellis Capital Advisors. He was joined here by my friend Jen Reingold of Fortune Magazine. All of us talking about the meaning of retail life and commercial property and the Amazon factor and what did we not talk about? Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Back next week. Our program today was recorded at NPR's New York Bureau. Neil Rauch is our engineer. Special thanks to the Martin Agency and Virginia Commonwealth University for their support. Check out our website, fulldiscloseradio.com, and find us on Twitter at FullDRadio. The executive producer of Full Disclosure is Jeffrey Bennett. I'm Robin Farzad. <laughs>